Hey everyone, it is Allison, your host. Before we begin today's episode, I want you to know it's about suicide, suicidal thoughts and attempts at suicide, along with the fear of suicide on the part of people who love those who are thinking about suicide. Just saying the word suicide the way I am right now in rapid succession is hard for me, and maybe it is for you too. Today's episode is a continuation of the conversation we began last week with writer Rocky Callan, who spoke candidly and openly about her own suicide, uh, suicidal ideations, her suicide attempt, her own recurrent depression, and how she and her family have learned to accept and recognize and deal with what we're calling big feelings. Because suicide, especially among young people, is sharply up these days, I want to talk about it too. We'll continue next week as well with an interview with a young social worker whose teen clients frequently speak about dying. Maybe because of this subject matter, you'd like to skip today's episode, or maybe you don't want to. Either way, I want you to know up front that suicide is our topic. And yes, I do keep saying that word. It's a word that has terrified me sometimes into almost paralysis my whole life. And saying it over and over and thinking about it in a different way from how I usually do is a kind of exposure therapy that I'm doing both for myself and also because not saying that word, not talking about it, doesn't make it better. A few weeks ago, actually over a month at this point, a listener I'll call Olivier, who lives in Quebec, sent a voice memo to Words by Winter. In it, He spoke about a weekend a few months ago in which one of his children, and then the other, on two successive days, attempted suicide. Olivier, whose voice was slow and calm, and yet somehow intense, and whose English is perfect even though he kept apologizing unnecessarily for it, went through the events of those two days. He repeated the word two, two children, two days, two children, two days. Olivier's voicemail brought waves of emotion through me. I could feel his love for his children, his stunned bewilderment mixed with grief and worry through the phone line. Death is always painful, but death by suicide is its own particular kind of pain, and it's one that's played itself out several times in several ways, in my own life. When I was four years old, I got on an airplane in upstate New York where I lived with my parents and my two little sisters, and I flew to Manhattan to visit my grandparents who lived there. I remember looking out of the airplane window and waving to my mother. She was standing behind a chain-link fence next to the runway. Clearly, (laughs) this was a tiny airport in a bygone era when you could plunk your four-year-old on a plane alone and watching her wave back to me. Once in Manhattan, I remember my grandparents' apartment as dark and quiet They took great care of me during my three-day visit, but I was so homesick. I have never felt homesick like that. All I wanted was to see my mother again, to be in my house, 
surrounded by fields and woods again. I remember my grandparents observing me and talking quietly to each other. I remember them calling my mother. This was back in the days of long distance. No one in my family ever had any extra money so that I could talk to her. My abiding memory of my Russian emigre grandfather from that visit is of him playing the violin. He loved classical music, and according to my mother, who was a surprise only child born to later life parents, it was always playing in the apartments she grew up in. I remember the tilt of my grandfather's head, the way the bow angled gracefully back and forth across the strings, the way the music sounded as if the violin was crying. That is my one memory of my grandfather. He died when I was seven. I remember being told first that he was very sick and in the hospital, and then that he had died of a heart attack. In the aftermath of his death, I remember driving to the city with my parents, going up and down and up and down in an elevator as my parents moved the contents of that apartment into a new apartment in upstate New York, where my grandmother would live for the rest of her life. I remember knowing that something about the explanation of my grandfather's death was off, that something was hidden. And I remember a while later, a year or so, going up to my mother in the kitchen and saying, how did Grandpa die? I remember her standing very still, looking at me, and then telling me that he had died of suicide. I was a little girl when my grandfather died of suicide, but I grew up witness to the reverberations of that particular kind of death, and it is a particular kind of death, with its own specific pain added on to the normal, overwhelming pain throughout my life. I witnessed the ongoing grief of my grandmother, the ongoing steady caregiving shown to her by my very young mother. I also witnessed the inability of most people in our world to talk about my grandfather's death and how he died. My grandfather's death when I was a little girl was my first experience with suicide, but it was not my last. A couple of years ago, one of my daughters needed her passport mailed to her. So I ran upstairs to the box marked important stuff (laughs) and found it. A piece of worn folded paper fell out at the same time and I unfolded it to find a photocopy of my long, long ago Boston driver's license. My knees buckled and I sank to the floor. The theory of brain chemistry says that trauma is held in the body and that even when conscious memory doesn't recall it, the body does. I looked at that driver's license photo and instantly went back to an early morning in May when I, 24 years old, had walked out of my crappy cockroach apartment Honestly, there were so many roaches. And Trump to the DMV determined, for once in my life, not to look like crap in my license photo. You're going to smile, I told myself. Look pretty. It was early morning that day, and the weather was strange, cool, but humid. It made me uneasy. 
After I renewed my license, I walked back to my apartment, worked for a while on another story that no one would want to read or publish. And then, uncharacteristically, I lay down on the couch I'd gotten for free on garbage night. I remember feeling as though something was happening, although I didn't know what. Then the phone rang, and I looked at it. I can still see it now in my mind, ivory-colored, with a long, curling cord. And my body knew, I could feel it, that something terrible had happened and someone was calling to tell me. Allison, have you seen him? When was the last time you saw him? It was the brother of the man I loved. The last time I had seen him was two nights prior. We had said goodbye, and then he had run back up the four flights of stairs and thrown his arms around me and said, I'm crazy about you. You know that, right? After I hung up the phone, I wrapped my pink quilt around myself and went to the chair by the window and waited. As I waited, I thought of the previous month when he had leaned toward me in the middle of what I thought was an ordinary conversation and said, I'm thinking of ending it all. Hours later, his brother called back to say that the police had found his body. A week later, my new driver's license came in the mail. I opened it up and stared at the girl in the photo. Her face was soft and round. She was smiling, but I was no longer that girl. In the two days after his suicide, I lost 15 pounds that would never come back. The chemistry of my body permanently altered, and new grooves were laid down in my brain that hold questions unanswerable to me still. Was there something I could have done? Was there something I should have done? I am so much older now than he was when he died. But that passport daughter of mine who needed her passport mailed to her, that daughter whose lightness of spirit and joyful youth I would do anything in my power to protect, was the same age that I was when everything fell apart. I think about the girl in that driver's license photo as if she's someone else, a girl who got up early on a May morning, determined for once in her life to look good in her license photo, who walked out into the day not knowing what was ahead of her, that in a few hours her life would be permanently altered. That girl still had a few hours of youth ahead of her, and all she wanted was to look pretty in her photo. And she did. She looked so pretty. A few weeks after the man I loved died, it came to me that it was my time, too, to die. When this thought came to me, it felt right and true. I instantly felt calmer than I had felt in a long time. It was as if a truth had been revealed to me, and finally there was some relief in store. Relief from the pain and grief I was living with every day, the endless replaying of what I could have done, what could I have done the sense that all my friends were now living in the same world I too had been living in. We were all in our early 20s, but that I had somehow been 
catapulted into the future, into a world where I alone was much older, bowed down by an experience that wouldn't come to anyone I loved until much later. But this, this strange knowledge that it was my time to die, this meant that I would no longer have to feel this way, no longer have to cope with the huge emotions that were literally eating away at my body, tormenting my mind. Thoughts of my parents, my sisters, my brother, all my friends crossed my mind. What would happen to them when they found out I'd died? But the same soothing feeling washed through me again, because they would be just fine. In fact, they would be better off, because they wouldn't have to witness my pain, feel bad for me, worry about me anymore. I would no longer be a drag on them. So I had made a plan, and I had the means, and I was all set. It was a big step, but it felt very clearly that it was the right step. My mother had made me promise at some point that if things ever got terrible, I would call her. It felt wrong to break that promise. I mean, she was my mother, and I adored my mother. So I called. But there was no answer which was okay because I had still fulfilled my promise. But then the thought came to me that I didn't want to leave the world without somehow saying goodbye to my best friend. So I called her with the idea of just chatting for a few minutes and telling her I loved her. That was something I did all the time anyway, so it wouldn't raise suspicions. And then, in retrospect, she would look back and realize that I had been saying goodbye, and this would bring her comfort. Does listening to all this sound as though I was in an altered state? It does to me, and I'm the one recounting the experience. The fact is I was in an altered state, a state of truly disordered thinking, a, I'm not sure what to call it, a major depressive episode? I don't know. But I didn't know that back then. All I knew was that I have been given the solution to my big feelings, and soon I wouldn't have to feel those excruciating big feelings anymore. But first, the call to my best friend. She picked up. It was an ordinary conversation, if any conversation, so soon after a death that affected us both so profoundly can be ordinary except that it wasn't at all ordinary. She instantly heard something in my voice, my tone maybe. I can still hear her voice in my mind and what she said. Allie, there is something about the way you're talking that has me very worried. One sentence. A single sentence, a certain tone in her voice, the simple statement of how she felt in response to my call, And somehow a switch flipped, and in that moment I felt it all disappear. The sense of peace and relief, the anticipation of an end to this crushing pain, to be replaced with the realization, exhausting though it felt, that I was going to have to stay. I was going to be here in this world, this life, and somehow figure out how to make it through. 
And along with that realization came the equally huge understanding of just how my death would have crushed my family and crushed my friends. By the end of that conversation with my best friend, I had promised her I would call a hotline, I would talk to a professional immediately when I hung up the phone with her. And I did. Within hours, I was sitting in a small office talking to an older woman, a quiet, preternaturally calm, laser-eyed therapist who immediately understood the situation who stayed with me until that immediate crisis had passed, until I had figured out some ways to cope with the feelings that I thought I couldn't cope with. I don't know if this account of that single situational episode of disordered thinking and depression is helpful, but I offer it anyway, because it reminds me of our conversation last week with Rocky Callan. If you missed that episode, Rocky is a writer who recounted her own decision to kill herself in adolescence and how, in the moment, it was the sound of her little sister's voice calling her name that had jolted her out of carrying out her plan. And it was the sound of my best friend's voice calling my name that jolted me out of my own plan. Which brings us back to Olivier and his children and how they are together finding their way through with therapists and honesty and understanding and patience and time. They are finding their way through. It brings us back to Rocky Callan, whose beautiful novel, A Breath Too Late, sheds light and grace (coughs) on the topics of both abuse and suicide. It brings us back to the high school student M., I spoke about last week, the one who wrote me to tell me that the suicide hotlines I'd included in the back of my book, What I Leave Behind, may have saved their life. It brings us back to hope, because most people who experience thoughts of suicide make it through those feelings. They come back to the world. They figure out how best to make it through the big feelings when they come, and big feelings come to us all. Therapy, opening up, talking, being honest about what you're thinking, what you're feeling, even if it feels like a forbidden topic. Something we know for sure about thoughts of suicide is that not talking about them makes them worse. So let's talk about them. My experiences with the suicides in my life, and there have been more than the ones I talk about in this episode, ended the lives of those I loved, and changed the course of my own life. The memories and the after-effects are lodged within me, the way this tiny little piece of graphite from a caught pencil in third grade is lodged in the palm of my right hand, inextricable and always with me. Olivier, that beautiful man with the beautiful, slow voice, wondered if maybe there was a poem that might be right for him in his current situation. One such poem that immediately comes to mind is written by a poet who has been exactly where Olivier's children were.
Miracle by Elena Bell. What else to call the way the bare branches I'd bought at the neighborhood bodega came back to life that winter? I'd carry them home, dry-wrapped in paper, stuck them in the square vase, and, as an afterthought, filled it with water. I don't know when I noticed the pale pink shoots sprouting from the submerged ends, wild, reaching roots like ginseng, or the hair on the old woman's chin. Then tiny green leaves began to appear at the tips, curling over themselves with the sheer effort of growing. I thought they were dead. And now I recall being in the grip of a darkness I did not have a name for and didn't think I'd survive. I could try to describe it for you now. The nights I woke with my pulse pounding through, the heaviness of each breath, how the effort of being inside my body felt like burning. What I really want to tell you is this, how in the parch of that long drought, the people I loved kept bringing me water. Water. Though I turned my back and did not answer to my name, though I flung the cup away. Let me say it plain, I wanted to die. But something in me, some tiny bulb still alive under all the rotted wood, kept drinking, kept right on drinking. Suicide and thoughts of it are not uncommon, nor are they things to hide or pretend don't exist. Poets who write about suicide often write about bouts with depression so deep and so overwhelming that the thought of it feels like a kind of relief. And when they come through it from that other side, they look back and hold their hand out to those in the struggle, calling them back to the world, which is something we can all do or try to do. That's it for today's show, my friends. Thank you for listening. If you liked it, please spread the word by sending the link to someone else who might. Give us a good rating if you are so inclined. Original theme music for our show is by Dylan Parisi. Additional music by Kelly Krebs. Elena Bell's beautiful poem, Miracle, was read by Matthew Colfax with her kind permission. The poem can be found in her new book, Mother Country just out from BOA Editions last fall. For more information about Elena Bell and her work, please check out her website, Elena, E-L-A-N-A, Bell.com. Words by Winner is created, hosted, written, everything by me, writer Allison McGee. Tell me what you're going through. I will look for a poem to help you and all of us through the way poems have been helping me since I was a little girl. You can send me a voice memo via email to wordsbywinterpodcast at gmail.com or drop me a line at the same address, which again is wordsbywinterpodcast at gmail.com. For more info, go to alisonmcgee.com. Words by Winter, conversations, reflections, and poems about the passages of life because it's rough out there. Or it can be. It sure feels like it a lot of the time. And we have to help each other through. Mm-hmm.